0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Wisdom Nutrition Podcast. This is Alex Sacken. Today I have a interview with author Nick Cook, who wrote, in my opinion, one of the best books on the UFO topic, and that is The Hunt for Zero Point. And so in this interview, we're gonna be doing a a bit of a retrospective on the book. We're gonna go through some of its main ideas. I'm gonna present Nick with some of my own ideas that I've been developing over the course of the past, you know, dozen or so episodes that I've done on the channel that have to do with the UFO issue, and particularly the human side of the equation. And Nick Cook does focus his book on the human side of the UFO story. In particular, he he targets World War II and the Nazi program. And his book did a lot to reveal this Nazi program, this Nazi UFO program, and the idea that America, the American National Security State, harvested this program after World War II. And so that forms a critical part of my analysis that I did in my long chapter, The Secret History of the Twentieth Century. And so in this episode, we're going to go over that material. I'm also going to uh, discuss with him my ideas about the importance of the 19th century aspect of the UFO story and what it tells us about the sort of secret governance of America and the idea that a whole paradigm of science and technology has gone classified since around the nineteen hundred early 1900s, around the time of Tesla. So anyway, these are all things we're going to be getting into in this episode. I really enjoyed this conversation with Nick. He's a great guy. And so without further ado, let's jump into it. This is me with Nick Cook. And once again, this is the Wisdom Nutrition Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. All right. uh, Wonderful. I'm really glad to be talking with you. I want to just say that I think that you've written one of the most important books in the UFO field, UFOlogy field, and it couldn't be more fitting for the current moment, I think, to be going back and talking about uh, what you revealed in your book, Hunt for Zero Point. Uh, So what I'd like to do is go into some of the content kind of go back in history and tell a side of the story that of this sort of UFO issue that most people aren't aware of, um, which is this very human side of the equation, but I just want to get your reaction or ask you a couple of questions that are uh, kind of current for the moment. Now, I know you wrote, you wrote your book about 20 something years ago.
1: Yeah.
0: Are you still keeping track of developments in the, sort of aerospace national national security state sort of field or have you moved on i know that you're writing novels now and you have a a, a new project called nick cook works so i'd like to hear a little bit about that too but i'm also wondering are you keeping touch with are you keeping in track with what's going on in the world
1: well uh, so um i don't do the national security beat And the aerospace beat like I did because I did that when I was at Jane's Defence Weekly. So I sort of moved on from there. I'm fairly across the UFO issue. I'm pretty much across that. Um, And the Nick Cook Works thing, that's just my website. I did some stuff uh, back during lockdown, which was to do with... um, To do with sort of global challenges and engaging the aerospace industry in that yeah i'm not doing that so much now but um i am pretty involved in the consciousness field i am a uh, research director of robert bigelow's consciousness institute okay so if you're familiar with robert bigelow and all of his uh stuff in the world of ufology um So, uh, yeah, I mean, just you can just ask what I'm doing and I'll, I can tell you.
0: Yeah, I definitely like to get into the consciousness stuff a little bit later on. That's something I do a lot with my channel. The the theme of, I don't know how much you were able to look at any of it, but my uh, sort of focus is uh, taking this field called esoteric philosophy, which is very much based in the ancient kind of wisdom traditions of the world, synthesizing them together, and then using that as a basis to analyze contemporary events and, things that are going on in the world and then a big aim of mine was also to try to develop some type of model for how uh, the overall social organism works in terms of like a sociological kind of a approach to under so you so when we look at a current issue like the ufo situation we can dr- fall back on some backdrop of understanding about how the overall social mechanism works how that would react to this kind of issue and for me your book is an important kind of clue to help us see what this sort of social model looks like because part of it is having to do with the fact that there is a a kind of technocracy or a sort of permanent bureaucracy that is in charge of weapons developments and technology very very you know profound research and you know this is not part of our democratic society it's not really necessarily part of capitalism or the economic world it's its own entity
1: sure that's i'm pretty much across that that's fine and I, i'm much more interested in talking about that than i am in the sort of pure technology side right. you know so that 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 interests me greatly that's fine and i have some views on it so that's right. good
0: excellent yeah. um so let's go back in time then a bit and and start looking at some of the content of of your book. Now, I know the book starts with your with your kind of famous account of having worked at jane's defense weekly and and had this kind of unexpected envelope arrive at your at your doorstep and and that seemed like a looking back on it, was that like a a pivot point in your life essentially that that moment of getting that journal and having your interest cue or peaked about this field. Would you say?
1: Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, the whole triggering of that hunt that I did, the, the, the investigation that I did that went into the book, the hunt for zero point was a pivot point in my life. I mean, I didn't know it at the time. In fact, I didn't set out to write a book. Of course, I was just setting out to do an investigation. So It's only when you look back on things, and this applies to us all, of course, you know, things that don't make sense at the time very much, when you look back on them, they tend to fit into a pattern in your life that then begins to make sense of the journey that you've taken up to this point. And I can definitely look back to, you know, that article landing on my desk and saying... uh, That has helped to make my life make sense. Um, But at the time, of course, I had no idea that I would end up here where I am today or that I'd even end up writing that book because it probably was another. Six or seven years before after that article landed on my desk. And of course, for those who aren't familiar with that article, it was. A, uh, a, 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 a an article from a 1950s magazine which talked about the heralding of a sort of anti-gravity age in right. the mid-1950s right. and that of course that that age never came <laughs> and uh, looking back at it from my perspective then which was in around 1990 the early 1990s certainly um being an investigative journalist at the time, I thought, hmm, well, that's strange. You've got all of these companies talking about the golden age of anti-gravity that was gonna come in the, right. in the 1960s that never came. So let's take a look at that. And that's, of course, what triggered my investigation into it all. And
0: it, well, it's, it also seems that it, it was the mix of that, the article, w- along with what happened afterwards when you tried to reach out to one of the sources cited in the article. And it's the combination of the, and I find this is actually true of the UFO situation at all. It's not, it's never been only about the technology. It's also always been about the government's relationship to the technology. Or, 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 so there's, so for you, you had the article, and then you try to reach out to somebody who was in this aerospace world, uh, who was cited in this 1950s article, who was still alive. And it was the idea that this person wasn't allowed to talk to you. was that part that's kind of the sense i got reading it That it was like it was that also that it was like okay there's something here
1: yeah you know looking back on it if uh if that guy had only said okay i'll give you an interview and then he could have said anything once you've given me the interview i would have probably gone off and done something else but instead the the reaction from the gatekeepers if you like and the gatekeepers at that time were public relations a, a public relations individual within Lockheed Martin which was the the sort of inheritor company of Martin aviation modern aerospace to which um this individual uh had Uh, had 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 belonged back in the 1950s, you know, if if none of that had happened in the way that it did, again, I would have just gone, okay, well, there's nothing to see here. And I would have marched off and done something else. But, you know, uh, yeah, you know, uh, again, you look back and you think, well, on such tiny things, whole, whole lives twist, you know, my, my life again took a turn at that moment to I went on and I did that investigation. So yeah, isn't it strange how it all works out?
0: So what was the big break in the case for you early on, where you where you found that you had discovered something sort of new and worthwhile that brought you to the next step?
1: Well, I don't, you know, I think the thing about the hunt for zero point, uh, and it's interesting for me to look back on it too, because there was a whole period when I in my life after I wrote it when I just didn't think about it at all. I just moved on to other things. Um, But, you know, I I, I guess it's taken on a bit of a new life since the New York Times came up with its seminal UFO, you know, um, buried UFO investigation department in the Pentagon story in 2017. Um, And then I have looked back at it and people, because people have asked me about it. Um, But I think the thing about the hunt for zero point is that, there were no big revelations in it really i mean it was just a for me it was a plodding investigation such as i probably would have done on any major story that you know i used to do when i was a an editor at jane's defence weekly and and you know my my dna that that was sort of triggered by by working for that magazine was all about investigation right. you know that's what we did and so um, a, a, and we were you know, taught to be quite, you know, I was taught in my apprenticeship to be quite rigorous about, you know, what I turned over in terms of evidence. So I didn't really see any smoking gun. I mean, there was no real smoking gun in that book, but it just was a series, I think, of interlocking pieces of evidence, which right. when you pick the book up and you read it, you kind of go, hmm, yeah, I probably conclude like Nick does that there's something here,
0: right? Um,
1: and it has a sort of shape to it, but um, you know, uh, I, I sort of leave it to the reader to, uh, judge whether there 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 was a buried anti gravity program there, um, and you know, I've got my own views too about looking back on it about about that journey and about the conclusions that I reached then.
0: Yeah.
1: Um but uh yeah I mean it's it's just nice for me to know that the book still has a relevance today.
0: Yeah I think I think it it will continue to, particularly because of the aspects of it that are kind of timeless in terms of the analysis you did that aren't going to age, which has to do with the comp with the research in the Kamler style, which is the thing I want to go into Hans Kamler Uh, Looking at Victor Schauberger and kind of presenting this case where uh, you can can see clearly that behind the story of World War II and behind the Cold War, uh, there is this hidden architecture being put into place uh and and i think that it's impossible to look at the current revelations because the current revelations don't touch that it's not about that part of it yet it's just we're at the stage where it's just a acknowledgement that this phenomenon exists but you know the people who are coming out uh don't really seem to have a clue and and the the, the people that are coming out you know are not talking about anything about this history. They're coming out with this idea of it must be aliens. It's you know the outer military isn't aware you know isn't responsible for making these. Therefore, it must be aliens. It couldn't be this hidden world. But that hidden world is really the, the world that you kind of traversed uh, to some degree because you talk about going out and visiting some of these. Uh, I don't know if you I can't remember if you were able to go inside, but at least knowing that there was these vast underground complexes out in the Midwest where these bases and who knows what they're working on exist but without reference that, to that for that infrastructure how can you possibly an- analyze this issue you know intelligently
1: well I, so a few things come out of that first of all of course when i look today at the ufo or uap issue um for me it's just not a binary it's not a binary thing mm-hmm. you know it is it is clearly a repository of so many different uh issues you know so many different stories go into make up the uap or ufo story um you know from uh a technology story there's unquestionably that in there but it's also about us you know at the other end of the spectrum it right. is a reflective phenomenon that reflects back at us what we bring to the to the to the to the mirror, if you like, what we bring to the screen, the the our uh, you know perceptual reality screen, right. and and you know and and everything in between. But so all I was doing back in the nineteen nineties when I decided to go on this journey, this investigative journey, was to look at a portion of the story that I felt that I could um, account for. Which right. was the part that played to my training um, yeah. as an aerospace editor, and what I wanted to do was I was sort of I wanted to kind of tick off if you like um the 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 a, a sort of a part of the UFO phenomenon that could be accounted for by nuts and bolts technology because you know as we discussed earlier on, when I saw that article about... The coming age of anti-gravity that never happened. I thought, okay, there are enough signatures here Mm -hmm. in what I know, and bear in mind, up to that point, you know, I'd looked at what I, you know, what let's paraphrase here as real-world black-world aerospace technology like stealth, you know, and uh, we we covered those stories. So I thought, yeah, I'm getting the signatures of a buried program. That's even more secret than stealth, right. that has to be about a you know, a truly momentous breakthrough. Right. Um, and the only one I could conceive of would that it would have to be a propulsion breakthrough. That would have to be that secret that it would hold for, well, up to that point in time, it was three or four decades. Um so uh, but it yeah, it raises a whole lot of other things in your question which is about the infrastructure that you are, that is required to keep a secret like that in place yeah. and that infrastructure i'd always felt you know even before i went off and investigated the the facts behind the hump zero point i, I don't consider myself to be a particularly intuitive person but whenever i walked into uh, the Pentagon, or, you know, a large aerospace and defense corporation, it gave me a feeling. And the feeling it gave me was, there is a collectively in this country, uh, I am quarter American, by the way. So okay. kind of, I, I like to think of myself as when I go to America, I like to think of it partly as home. Mm-hmm. So when I, um, when I go into these places, it gives me a feeling. And the feeling is that there are multiple layers beneath this institution which are covering up a secret Uh, and the secret is not a technology secret per se it is an institutionalized bureaucracy Mm. that is given over to the uh the protection of secrets and in a sense all i did when i went on the journey in the hunt was to expose that infrastructure. Yes. Uh, and and it is as much a an infrastructure of the mind as it is one of, compart- you know, true physical compartmentalized silos that right. hold the secrets. And then when we go on the journey in the hunt that takes us back to the Nazi stuff, the value of looking at that for me wasn't that in the end, that there was a buried Nazi, you know, flying saucer program. You know, I, I I go into it to look at it because in the in the sort of the, the law around flying saucers, there was this part, as you know, that was all about, well, you know, the Nazis developed secret saucer tech. So I had to go off and look at that. Right. Very reluctantly, I might add. But the value of coming out of that part of the study and the Kamler piece that you also referenced was that was the realization that at the end of the Second World War, when the allies go in and plunder German technological secrets, they take that back with them, and particularly America does, it takes back with it, an infrastructure for handling secrets. Yes. And unfortunately, as I say, in the hunt for zero point, what it also does as a an unsort of witting byproduct of that is that there is a rub off, unfortunately, of some of that ideology. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that you know um, uh, America is is riven with Nazi ideology. It is certainly not. But what it unwittingly took with it was because it couldn't help but do that when you you know you you bring that technology back you bring a methodology back for holding on to secrets right. which was developed by uh Kamala and his staff unfortunately what that also uh brings with it is a sort of virus yeah. and unfortunately some of that virus is extant today and it holds the secrets in place and that's a truly uh unfortunate corollary of um of of what happened back then
0: yeah yeah you know you mentioned the psychological piece and for me that's key because if you look at uh if you look at psychology as having a collective aspect to it when you have so there's a, this is what depth psychology like carl jung was based on this idea that there's an individual psychology but there's also this collective field that there's no separation between the individual and the collective and you find this in sociology too you have this idea of institutions So we're always anytime you have a society, it's structured at this large level by institutions. And so it's impossible to understand the behavior of a person without understanding the institutional environment. So in both fields, you have this idea of individual and collective. So if we factor this in, in this idea of the collective psyche. When you have a situation of secrecy and compartmentalization, you know, that means you have a psyche that's split and fractured within itself. And can't there isn't a, a, a coherent flow of energy between the various levels because you have all these dams set up to block the flow. And so you have this inevitably you have a, a widespread neurosis set in because and just as you do at the individual level, when you have all these blockages and things that are sort of repressed within yourself, secrets that you're keeping, you know, you your your psyche starts to split. And I and I feel like that this explains a lot of the world we have today is this and so many years of secrecy so many years of compartmentalization have t- w- taken their toll to the point that we have what we are in today like a real world world emergency and a psychic psychological emergency
1: i i couldn't agree more with that yeah I, I, and it you know it is a truly unfortunate um side effect of all of this that there is there is a fragmentation. I mean, I had have, I hadn't really truly thought of it in those terms, but I think that is it's so analogous what you say to, you know, the the, the collective unconscious posited by Carl Jung, um, and where you've got this this tremendous infrastructure which you do in America that is given over to secrecy, um, and the uh, the corrosive effect that that has um and it because what it does is you can't i don't think separate it from the the democratic processes of government that lie on its surface you know that that's the surface layer right. um but underneath it there is this very corrosive compartmentalized system um that was given over to begin with to uh govern uh, technology yeah technological secrets right but of course and sadly it couldn't be contained in that way and i think that there has been seepage over many decades that has come to the surface and of course it's corroded the the upper levels the upper levels and those levels are the democratic processes that we see in government but below it you know i think as i say in the book that the 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 system of government is compartmentalised to death um, vertically and horizontally so that uh, this is, you know, this is the unfortunate result of, of, you know, of where we are. And what interests me, you know, today, you know, when I look at some of the events on Capitol Hill where you know as a bipartisan issue both sides of the house are looking at the ufo uap issue mm-hmm. um and and again what you know perhaps what they thought they were getting into was you know where are the uh where are the flying saucers buried where are the alien bodies buried right. well no, actually what they are now uncovering is this system that we're talking about which right. is um uh, one that has been in place for decades and is you know given over to or rather not giving over to giving up its secrets and doesn't like it when it's being kicked in this way Um, and it's going to be very reluctant to give those secrets up and you know it's 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 a it's a challenging task um but you know nothing nothing in the end stays buried forever and and it's almost like this stuff is sort of is ready to be given up um so uh it's a it's fascinating you know as a sort of casual observer of these things to see how it is unfolding
0: so um i would like to maybe come back to some of these points at the very end but now i want to go and maybe try to put a bit of a historical uh sort of timeline to things so when we're thinking about all the topics we're talking about technology, secrecy, compartmentalization um in America where where do you point to for the for the beginning of this movement or the beginning of the of events that culminated in uh this the establishment of this sort of governmental compartmentalized structure
1: well it's hard to say but i don't think it was uh truly in place on a widespread basis before, certainly not before the Second World War or America's entry into the Second World War. Um, there was, of course, the Manhattan program, which produced the atomic bomb, which, uh, you know, was its own version of compartmentalization and secrecy. But as I say in the book, it didn't work very well. You know, Never. that version of it, you know, <laughs> if we've just, anyone who's just watched Oppenheimer will know that the secret of the Manhattan Project didn't hold for very long. Right. Um, and, and, but before the Manhattan Project, there was really nothing that held, you know, secrecy on a widespread basis in place. Then I think you had the Manhattan Project, which sort of set a precedent for it. Um, but it wasn't until, as I said earlier, the that the German system was imported back into right. uh, the States, particularly. I mean, you know, Britain's not blameless in this either. Um, but but you know, predominantly it was the US because of that recruitment of Nazi science and tech right. um, that which was, I think, you know, affected most um and and it it was tempting to bring it back because the, right. the system put in place by uh Hans Kammler who was Germany's head of um well at least he was obviously the SS plenipotentiary put in place by Hitler to safeguard and nurture Germany's most advanced technology during at the end of the second world war yeah so it was very tempting to bring that stuff back. I don't think anyone knew that it was going to come back infected by this kind of v- virus, but, of course, it, it did. Um, and, you know, the German system was incredibly effective. I mean, the yeah. system put in place by Kamler was phenomenally effective. And it's kind of interesting, too, that Kamler sort of instituted an underground system. I mean, yeah. literally a physical system. Yeah underground system and you've seen some of that
0: right you've seen some of that infrastructure oh yeah yeah
1: right? i mean i i did i mean i've traveled quite a bit and and was shown parts of it and as much of it you know you can't see because it has literally been blown up right but the bits that you can see are testament to its effectiveness and you know without wishing to get too overly psychological about all of this you know it's it's when you take things underground, you you literally make things very, very dark. Wow. And, you know, what you had, of course, during the Cold War in America was the need to take things underground because wow. nuclear weapons and the threat of Armageddon uh, require you to put things underground right. to protect them. But of course, in a way, what what you're beginning to mirror is that terrible, horrible sort of troglodyte world that Kamler put in place at the end of the Second World War with the German system. So again, you get that sort of mirror image from Germany into the States. And, you know, that is, it it is too, it's very um, beguiling and infecting. And And I just... Uh, I mean, you raised this point earlier about how when everything becomes compartmentalized and fractured, of course, it it, it destroys creativity in a way. You know, Mm. if if my if my brain were to become fragmented in the way that the system has become fragmented, I wouldn't be very creative. No one. would. And, you know, one of the accusations today leveled at the. UAP world, is that if we have taken um, sequestered non-human technology and put it into that system, um, and if, as we hear, I don't know how true this is, but it's certainly something you hear, that science, the the Black world science, has not made very much progress with sequestered non-human technology because it is so compartmentalised, well, I'm not surprised, because if you're going to make sense of something that has crashed to this world that is non-human, you're going to need to bring all of science to it, you know, black world and white world, in order to make sense of it. But clearly that's not happening. Um, So that's, you know, I'm, I'm just not surprised at all by that because of the way science works. You've got to science to be effective you have to open it up and that clearly is not happening or has not been happening over the past several decades in that world
0: you know you brought up a good point it it is it does this whole issue literally the underground aspect of it is like a a perfect symbolic representation of the shadow what young would call the shadow or or a shadow complex so these idea of, of the things that you repress within yourself have a way of manifesting in your life either externally or through your own like neurotic tendencies and so the need to keep secrets is one of these primary things that cause a shadow complex and collectively the, the literal secret science technology underground and all the consequences of that is very much a literal version of the formation of a of a, a vast collective shadow complex
1: indeed it has created a shadow world a shadow complex and you could say a shadow government so you know none of which is you know in psyche terms um if you take the collective psyche of a nation or for that matter even for the world is a very good thing right so you know i look forward to the time when this is this is broken down because right. it's it is not good for us as a, you know, us as a planet to operate on that basis. I understand why it happened, you know, uh, when you move from a uh, devastating um, global conflict like the second world war into then a cold war, which threatens even greater destruction, you're gonna be very protective of your nation state, um and your infrastructure, and you know as far as you can, your way of life um taking that underground literally and metaphorically uh was to those you know the planners behind that uh, uh sort of safety structure was was what they thought they were doing best for them, and it worked in national security terms. But it it it's it, it has no place anymore. It, right. it it shouldn't do because it ultimately becomes corrosive, right. and I think that's that's what's happened.
0: Yeah. Um. There's a couple of mysteries about this situation uh, that I want to present. Maybe just get your take on uh, that. That that kind of precede the events that you pick up on in the book that have to do with World War II. These are some some mysteries that have to do with things that happened in the 1900s an obvious one um i'll go into a a couple others but an obvious one is the story of nikola tesla this is in the late 1800s 1890s early 1900s so before victor schauberger before whatever exists in the modern modern aircraft agency or whatever Some of the ideas of what, whatever science is behind these breakthrough technologies that is being sequestered in this Black Projects world, uh, it seems that those scientific ideas were being worked with and discovered by this sort of savant Nikola Tesla. And so, let's let's start kind of our investigation there. What, what did you? uncover about him and his work and his ideas and over the course of researching your book and where do you think that he fits into the story well
1: actually tesla hardly features at all in the half zero point and i'm not even sure uh i mean I'm, i think i probably made the odd reference to him I, and i deliberately didn't go into the world of tesla because he'd been covered so extensively by other people uh i just felt i could make no meaningful contribution where you know where others had gone before me um uh, i of course i've read up on tesla since uh, but i'm not an expert um and so i can't really comment on any in any great depth on right. the tesla the tesla story you know beyond the fact that he clearly was a genius um he's you know laid the foundations of the modern electronics industry, the modern you know electrical industry. Um, the man was a genius. Uh, he clearly had ideas way ahead of his time. Um, there is some suspicion, as far as I can see, about events around his death and how you know those ideas or some of his ideas seem to have sort of been grabbed and buried and put away. That. To be, you know, at the time, and it still does all feel a bit conspiratorial for me. I mean, you know, in terms of, it sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory. Uh, and I, I'm not an, uh, an expert enough on him to know whether any of that is true. Right. So I'm going to sort of plead the fifth on that one and just go, that's about as much as my knowledge of, uh, as far as my knowledge of right. Tesla will take.
0: Well, there's all right. So there's a couple points I want to mention about him that I think are important. I think when we when we look at him, we have to fact particularly what happened where he had this career that was going ascending, 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 and then all of a sudden it just stops, and essentially he's all his funding, everything stops, and in particular that shift that that change has to do with this relationship with J.P. Morgan. I don't know if this is an aspect that you went into, but J.P. Morgan was one of his financiers. And he was working on a on a project out in Long Island off of New York and was financed by JP Morgan. And he, he kind of, so this is what happened. Tesla sold the idea to JP Morgan that he was going to create a communication device uh, using the atmosphere, um, kind of an early type of wireless communication telephones. And, but actually, secretly, he was working to build uh, the infrastructure for uh, energy, a kind of a he wanted to test his idea for free energy, a not you know not an energy system not based on wires, you know, like the Edison kind of model. And and J.P. Morgan was also you know involved with Edison. And so when when J.P. Morgan eventually learned of what Tesla's actual purpose was, how he was trying to essentially create something that would revolutionize the economy and society then that's when the first indication of a a type of conspiracy to sequester those blueprints and technologies. But also, I think around this time is when you you first find a concerted movement to start dividing the science, dividing the physics, where there was a sort of creation of a public physics, a kind of public mythology, we can think about it, of Einstein, relativity, space-time, things like that, that that have never fit together into a meaningful picture. We have just all these isol- isolated schools of, of thinking in physics now. But that really division happened then because the ideas that Tesla was working with, and this is what he states transparency, transparently in his book, he was going back into kind of the ancient philosophical ideas of alchemy to some degree. He was talking about the either, the idea of a luminiferous ether. The idea of space-time not being this empty kind of void, but rather space itself is actually a, a field of energy that f- forms draw into themselves, that living forms, life forms draw into themselves. And so there's this relationship between metaphysics and physics. And so this idea of metaphysics, physics to either, that begins to disappear right around 1900, the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. And instead you see this promotion of uh, this this sort of einstein kind of physics and this was the very physics that the as we'll be discussing later on the germans had discarded and they were working with the either concept and their technologies they, they you know they, they were also very uh occult kind of inspired looking back to influences in alchemy the Kammerstab was in that whole milieu of the ss and so it seems that some some mysterious thing happened in america where i think the beginning of an entity the, the beginning of a of a perspective and a group and a power interest had you know had this threat of tesla face them and it's inspired a type of organization to happen and a type of mission to be formed to how do we control monopolize and figure out what to do with this technology and how do we change how do we set about a mission to create a, a social order that you can one day use these technologies? And to me, that explains another thing that happens right around this time is you have you, you start to see the beginning of an imperial mindset in America. Where America starts to make these moves throughout World War I, the interwar period, World War II, where gradually... There's this coalition of interests to replace the British Empire and to install an American imperium American economic imperium and so all these critical things happen right around the year nineteen hundred and so for me, that is uh for me that's where the story really begins
1: well, you're probably right um and and you know I the more I have looked into, you know, issues around consciousness, which is, you know, some, I've been spending some time doing over the past five or 10 years, um, you know, the more it is readily apparent to me at least that, you know, the the world that we inhabit is largely illusory. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the physical makeup of the world is largely illusory. I mean, in terms in the sense that what we take as a hard physical material universe is merely the, the surface froth of a much deeper reality. Mm-hmm. So you can't, I don't think, differentiate or distinguish between physics and metaphysics because they are integrally bound up and bound together. So you get someone like Tesla, who was clearly, to me at least, from the little I know about him, someone who was quite ethereal in his makeup, in his uh, the way he impacted the world. Um, there was an otherworldly quality to him. But that otherworldly quality is what gave him his genius, I think. Right. But it also allowed him to see some of the mechanics, if you can call it that, of the the deeper world. But then coming the other direction, you have hard, you know, materialists like JP Morgan and Edison, who uh, were sculpting a very different kind of world. And it's almost as if there was no room in it for Tesla, or maybe the world wasn't ready for Tesla at or someone like him at that time. It's almost like, you know, at the beginning of this, I was talking about how you look back over your life and your life makes sense now, but bits of it don't make any sense at all while you're going through certain moments. And it's sort of like that a bit when you look back over the 20th century, you sort of think, well, it's almost like we had to go through all of those machinations uh, to get to where we are now. Right. Maybe for our own psychological, psychic development yes. as a species. Uh, and what Tesla was offering was a sort of short circuiting of the system to advance us quicker than the we were ready to right. be advanced. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, but it's almost like, because the world wasn't ready for that. Yes. It sort of destroyed him. I mean, it destroyed right. him. Right. Um, of course, uh, he lived to a fairly ripe old age, but um, that's, that's how it seems to me. Right. There are certain people that the world is not yet ready for. And it's almost like you know, something contrives to uh, um, ease them out of the system, right. to make way for things that we have to go through. Right. uh to advance our consciousness perhaps to, yes. to to where it's then supposed to be and i can't because i'm not a tes- tesla expert i couldn't really um go into it in any more depth than that right, but right. you know that, that's sort of how i feel about it In a yeah i agree way. with
0: your point that there's a there's a, a bit of a feeling of fate and destiny to to it all and like you were saying you know, at any given time in human history, the people who are living through it, through what they're going through, it seems like chaos. But now when we look back at the story of history, you clearly see these episodes and this developmental arch that's taking place. And my feeling is that what we're going through today seems very chaotic at the moment. But with, with retrospect, 100 years from now, it'll be clear kind of what the destiny that's fulfilling itself during this moment. Because like you were saying, there there seems to be stages That mankind has to go through and we have to really go through something and learn from experience before we can achieve another a a higher stage or a next level of of
1: life consciousness leap yeah
0: and there's there's lots of uh you know traces of this kind of thinking in ancient philosophy particularly in the in the study of astrology because there's this idea of time cycles that have these thematic elements that will play out so like different astrological ages like the great platonic year and in the, in the in the wheel of the zodiac that you know during the age of pisces a, turn, a certain archetypal experience is going to express itself through and so now this is what i wrote about in my last article we're in this uh kind of transition point uh where the P- pisces is ending aquarian themes and stuff are beginning to come through and and very much these I- ideas about the ether and uh, the technology that the that these kind of breakthrough devices like ufos are using have to do with with the thematic elements of aquarius that we're moving into but then pisces has this idea of somewhat of like a splitting and so this kind of bears in i think into what you were saying is that there are these archetypal themes that mankind has to experience and and i agree with you that tesla was sort of living a somewhat ill-fated life where he was this pioneer who was going to bring something out that was going to have effect on the world, but it, it wasn't in the way that he thought it was. I, mean, I, I feel like he definitely wasn't the only one, but he helped inspire this this sort of reaction against, this te- against these scientific ideas, against this technology and this need to conceal and protect and everything that would become institutionalized within this military industrial complex that we have today so in some ways i feel like he was born to inspire that that shift and so he has this his life does have a bit of a a feeling of fate and synchronicity kind of all all the way through it um there's one more thing i want to point out uh about the uh, 1800s aspect of this story um i'm not i don't know if this is something that you came across in your research but there was this famous wave of sightings of what was at the time called flying airships this is being the 1890s there were hundreds of newspaper articles about them it was relatively common and then right around 1900 right around this period they they suddenly cease which again might suggest that we're seeing a time of consolidation on some secret level of U.S. society U.S. power elite uh involving this technology but in the research I found back then when they're talking about these sort of more crude flying airships which are using anti-gravity principles but they don't look like ufos they look like kind of steampunk-esque ships to various degrees it's number one it's it's extremely clear that these are run by humans there's no alien the alien concept doesn't really come until after world war ii after the after the harvesting of the german program by america and so we'll get into that but uh it also there's a reference to sort of the idea at this early stage it was secret societies it was esoteric orders that were really trying to experiment with rediscovering some of the principles of alchemy but now applying it in this move into the industrial age applying it in a technological industrial concept and they were experimenting with uh developing yeah technologies devices of various types that were using these ideas of ancient alchemy and, and this idea of the ether once again comes up because this is one of the foundational principles principles of alchemy and you keep running to this idea of either over and over again in this in this world of UFO research breakthrough energy research Tesla research so so for me there is this uh, there is this mystery in America that dates back before the Germans before the harvesting of the German program that there was something here in America already working with. These ideas already set up, set about uh, sort of monopolizing it, and then as we go into the early 1900s, but particularly the interwar, World War One and the interwar period, you know, we we find this move in uh, America, American corporations, American banks to est- establish these deep rooted connections in Germany and in Russia, even with the idea of creating a world cartel system. Energy cartel, and and so when we look at the German program, which is what I want to move into in a moment, you know the and the, how the Kamerstab program worked, the secret underground research facilities that that it was there was a heavy presence of these corporations, IG Farben and other types, and those German corporations. Had extensive ties with these American networks of financiers and capitalists, so in in some way the German program never existed or emerged independently, fully independently of involvement and oversight and somewhat to some degree protection from some some hidden unknown thing that was being developed in America in the early very early 1900s that had this view of secret science, attempting to write either physics off the books that is uh probably responsible for shutting down these airship mysteries because there were like hundreds of articles about these flying airships in 1896 and 1897 and then it just stops and so for me that's where the story be- really begins but there's there's so little information about what this is and how it works that re- it's really the story that you tell in the hunt for zero point that we can get start getting really detailed understanding about uh how this system would 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 develop over time going into the rest of the 20th century so this earlier phase we can see hints and clues but it's really not until after world war ii that anything really real that we can now track what the modern situation looks like i know that was kind of a long explanation but those are for me like the, some of the most important aspects of the u f o mystery that are never discussed anywhere almost this idea of the human basis in the nineteen hundreds and this idea of either an alchemy um so anyway, any comments on that before we move move on
1: yeah well sort of i mean uh, uh so i'm 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 aware of that airship wave of the late nineteenth century um in America and uh again, I'm not done an in-depth study of it, but for me, you know, well, let me backtrack a second. So when I 20, 30 years ago almost, when I started investigating the hunt for Zero Point, I was looking for tangible physical evidence, right. nuts and bolts stuff. Right. Because that's what I'd the tradition I'd grown up in. I right. mean, career-wise. Um, I did the book, left it behind, moved on, have moved into other areas. When I look back again, the the world seems to me a lot less solid than it did when I started out investigating the hunt for zero point um, in, in the 1990s. So when I look at a phenomenon like the American airship mystery of the late 19th century, I see it through a very different lens than I would have seen it then. Mm -hmm. The lens I see it through now is more metaphysical. It is, um, did this really happen? Were there really airships uh, where, you know, that were flying across Texas and, you know, the Midwest or wherever with people leaning out saying absurd things to people on the ground? well, I have a really hard time believing that, right. that it was a solid physical phenomenon. And, you know, I, of course, you know, Jacques Vallée and others have done, to my mind, good work in trying to uh, elucidate the sort of, the the, the very fluid nature of, of of of, you know, phenomena that appear like that, that appear to be quite reflective of the era that they arise in, you know, Jacques takes that right back to medieval times and lore about, you know, goblins and fairies and mythology around that, you know, being reflective of the of the of the age that they appeared in then. So when I look at a phenomenon like that, I I have to see it in that context, that it was somehow reflective of the age that it appeared in Mm -hmm. A, a little like you know um the ufo phenomenon as it arose in the 1940s and 47 onwards mm-hmm. was sort of reflective of you know things that were happening in in america and elsewhere then you know i also note that the ufo phenomenon as it you know sort of exists today is uh quite or ha- it 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 appears to be quite chameleon like in its in the way that it um, camouflages itself.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: if there is a non-human intelligence dimension to the UFO phenomenon, and I think on evidence there is, then it is pretty good at disguising itself. And therefore it may mimic things that, you know, it believes that people are ready to see in the skies and elsewhere. Um, at the time. So there may be a mimicry component to what is seen by people um, in the, uh, in, in the age that they view strange phenomena in. Um, I haven't really taken it much further than that. Except again, that I think it comes back to this, this notion that, you know, hard reality is not hard reality at all. It's actually incredibly fluid. And, you know, if we were to take this discussion back a step too to what you were talking about a moment ago about why it is that certain um, breakthroughs don't happen kind of when they seem they should. So we were talking about Tesla, but we could also talk about zero point energy. You know, I take the title of the book from um, uh, pioneers in the zero point energy field who were and are trying to bring about a breakthrough in producing energy from the vacuum the quantum vacuum um there are instances of i think of many inventors a bit like tesla who kind of nearly achieved that breakthrough but were either crushed by the establishment into not bringing that technology through i mean Schauberg is another one. We I'm sure we can talk about him shortly.
0: Yeah.
1: But um it We're never about happened.
0: Hutchinson, right? Didn't you interview Hutchinson in your book? I John did.
1: Hutchinson? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, John's kind of another one too, but there are there are multiple others. It never quite happens. Mm-hmm. Um I've mentioned Jacques Valley a moment ago, who has a posits a theory called the control system theory that intelligences or an intelligence, an overarching intelligence. Is sort of manipulating our reality, um, and you could posit from that that s- that intelligence, if it exists, if we live in this kind of simulated world, is saying, uh, uh-uh, uh, you know, that the the human program that we're running now isn't ready, or we don't want it to be ready to absorb that technology yet. You know the present state that it's in has some time to run before we or it, humanity, is ready for that technology. Right. And zero point energy may be an example of that. As with anything, it can be creative or destructive. And you know we in our present state, you know, and depressingly, you know, as we see, you know, conflict and standoff um you know resurrecting itself in the world uh you 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 know you can very clearly make a case to say that humanity is not ready yet for another technology or another science that can could either be extremely positive for the world or very destructive because sure as eggs is eggs you know humanity in its present state is going to look to see how it can make a bomb out of zero point energy uh as quickly as right. or maybe even before it's going to turn it to positive use right so you know all of that by way of saying um things that appear may not be as they seem and i think that airship wave of the late 19th century for me is something that need not necessarily be seen through a pure nuts and bolts prism or in a nuts and bolts capacity right. because it it just has this very surreal quality about it which says to me "Hmm, you know someone or something is is shaping reality to give it a twist that is it's not just about nuts and bolts
0: right yeah I I I completely agree with what you're saying And, and in fact you're almost describing in different words my ultimate perspective on it all right, so one thing I want to say when I keep saying the word either, I'm it's equivalent to zero point. It's the same kind of uh, idea, and uh, but the either concept is important because we can trace this back thousands of years into this this sort of field that an esoteric philosophy that you, this is what you study. This the idea of that there has always been a, a sort of like high priesthood, a council of elders, you know, who have maintained this tradition of. Uh, understanding the sort of secrets of consciousness mind energy and and this is where you get the reports of you know in India there's always been legends about sort of great called adepts or arhats or or gurus or sages And, and actually all cultures and traditions have their uh version of this and and in sort of classical times, like Greek, ancient Greece, for example, that knowledge existed, but it was always held and protected within the body of this institution, this great hidden institution uh, that I think exists today, has always existed, but it's very much out of our awareness, which is the idea of, uh, it goes by different names, but it's called the mystery schools, or it was once called the mystery schools. And um, and for me, that's the key, the key, the thing that kind of, changed my thinking on the whole thing was learning uh, this ufo issue was learning about its interface with this idea of either and alchemy because those fields have always been under the protective umbrella of the mystery schools and that tells me that ultimately this technology is not and this and the trajectory of world events is not controlled by any uh sort of group that we would normally think about like a deep state or something like that that ultimately the whole thing is orchestrated at this level of the mystery schools and their approach to life and and the way that they were involved with government in all times was through initiation, that they would set up these mystery plays and they would sort of force mankind to go through an experience, either individually, the candidate going through the mystery schools, grades of disciple would be presented with these experiences that they would have to be faced with and overcome before they get to the next level. And looking at a kind of microcosm macrocosm view, I think that today in this modern age, this whole mystery about UFOs and secret government and all that stuff is ultimately part of a, an, an initiation uh, a, 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 an initiation ritual being carried out by this mystery school institution. And I would say something that a lot of people are, are, are want to overlook, the symbols of this mystery school are on the dollar bill. The traditional symbols of the all-seeing eye with the pyramid and the eagle, which is really a phoenix, those are the traditional symbols of the mystery school. So for me, this idea that Jack Filet is talking about, this overseeing intelligence, is interfacing with this, not not with extraterrestrial intelligence or something from somewhere else, but it has to do with the mysteries of life on Earth and this idea that there is a a, a god and an over intelligence and over soul and also an institution within human life that interfaces with these mysteries and is responsible for evolving the collective psyche the collective body of man from stage to stage in this longer developmental developmental sequence so that's my ultimate perspective
1: i mean the piece that i just can't fit into that puzzle that you describe it, it is is the the human dimension that there is a uh a a hidden body of humanity a sort of you know the mystery schools or whatever body that is interfacing with the higher power and shaping the reality itself i mean It may be, I I, you know, I've always said, if you're going to get involved in this field, you need to reserve the right to change your mind at any time. So I just don't know enough about it, is what I'm saying. What I can subscribe to is a version of reality that is that is 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 so fluid that it can break through our physical you know material reductionist view of the world in places uh you know quite um quite successfully uh and 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 what that results in are the appearance of absurdities you know to our mind when we look at them through a sort of material eye um But, you know, that may be, I don't know, maybe it is shaped by some higher power, maybe it's shaped by some lower intelligence, uh, or maybe a combination of them. Um, But all I do know is the solid physical reality that we think of as our real world is is not as solid and physical and real as it appears to be. And, you know, we have we have that is the way it presents itself to us.
0: Right. Okay. so let's let's go into a bit now on uh, the sort of organizational dynamics of Nazi Germany, the SS and the commerce program, because I feel like this is going to tell us, like you were saying and hinted before, there is a clear relationship between this program in Germany and the post-war American national security, state, military, industrial complex. There was a harvesting that happened, more or less. And so by learning something about this German program, we can gain certain insights into America, the current American situation. So describing what happened in Nazi Germany uh, that led up to the build-out of their secret weapons sort of empire, uh, how would you start that story? Or what would you say... Were the things that came about to bring about this unique situation in nazi germany during the war where they had this completely um secret world secret uh technology world that still to this day almost nobody knows about
1: well it was startling to me when i found out about it because um i think as i say it say in the Humphrey zero point you know i I certainly knew a lot about technology because that was my job. I was a technology editor for a defense journal. Um, I thought on an interest level, I knew quite a lot about World War II because I've always been interested in modern history. Uh, So, um, but when I found out about the Kamlerstab, the secret office set up and run by general hans kamler who was an ss uh an ss uh, high-ranking ss general
0: an engineer well, basically
1: right well he was actually he was an administrator is what he was he was more an administrator than a, than an engineer and that's why he was put in place of this organization was because he had uh uh extraordinarily effective engineering sorry administrative skills um yeah. You know, along with those extraordinarily effective administrative skills came a propensity, uh, as you'd expect from someone in the SS hierarchy for extreme violence, which, of course, made him a very uh, sought after figure at the end of the war, Uh, not just because of uh, his um, knowledge about German secret weaponry, but because he was
0: a key figure in the Holocaust right um, cuz he designed uh, the early concentration i mean like the it seems like his his specialty was he started off concentrate what designing the concentration camps and then he kind of quickly moved over into interfacing the concentration camps with these secret weapons programs because the concentration camps were being actually mined as slave labor essentially for these camps right
1: correct uh so w- w- what he did was effectively build up an empire within an empire. So right. the SS was uh, an institution within the greater German hierarchy, Nazi hierarchy, right. but within the SS itself, um, Kamala had built what I call in the book, a, a kind of kingdom of technology. It was a technology kingdom, right. uh, as we said before, much of it was put underground to protect it from um discovery and bombing by the allies Um, and the manpower for uh building well first of all actually excavating those underground um bunkers and caves and factories where all of this stuff you know was 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 made Uh, was done by uh, slave labour from uh, the concentration camps. But then, of course, the technology itself, the factory production lines were also um, uh, uh, manned by slave labour. So the whole thing had a very deeply um, uh, 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 unpleasant sort of uh, DNA running throughout it. I mean, it was born out of suffering. And... But it was extensive. This this kingdom stretched from southern Poland into parts of Germany, uh, East Germany, um, then into Austria and the Czech Republic, right. um, Czechoslovakia, as it then was. Um, and you know, I I visited quite a few uh, uh, outposts of this kingdom, as I as we mentioned earlier. Um, And there is a sort of horrible feeling of sort of oppression about it, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, it was extremely effective and uh, widespread and uh, very tightly run um, and very little was known about it. So, you know, perhaps I shouldn't be as surprised as I was that I didn't know much about it, because even when I was looking at it in the early to mid 1990s, very little was known about it uh, right. i came across a reference to it in a in a in a pretty obscure book and and i'd never heard of Kamler before and i should have because of the extraordinary impact that he had um on the world of technology at the end of the second world war but you know as you'll know from having read the book part of that uh uh his um an anonymity was deliberately orchestrated because he uh, he was literally made to disappear at the end of the war. Right. Um, there were multiple versions of his death, you know, given uh, to the public record, um, which made people believe that he had, you know, died at the end of the Second World War. We now know that not to be the case. He right. was, um, he surrendered to German, sorry, American troops Uh, forces at the end of the Second World War and was alive for at least a year and interrogated for a year after the end of the Second World War. Um, The fact that that has been kept secret um, can in large part be attributed to the fact that he was so instrumental in the machinery of the Holocaust. And that was all covered up. Um, So, yeah, it's all mired in a tremendous amount of secrecy.
0: Right. Looking at the, the the strategy they used to compartmentalize and conceal uh what they were doing, they used a kind of various levels where the bottom levels would sort of exist to bottom level projects would sort of exist to obfuscate the fact that there were deeper levels. And I I think I remember you writing about how in these underground bases there would be levels of tunnels or levels of project that literally embodied this idea where the deeper level like if you're working on the top level stuff you might be working on v2 rockets at the bottom level stuff you could be working on who knows what like something really exotic perhaps but the the top level stuff even within a secret the underground thing there was secrets within secrets so you have these sort of false leads kind of put out uh about what the what kind of secret projects were being worked on but so stuff was very buried, right? Uh, would you say, like describing how this, how their organizational projects dynamic worked?
1: Well, it, as we've discussed, it, it was physically buried, or a lot of it was physically buried. I didn't come across any evidence, as far as I recall, and you know this is going a long way back now, but um, I don't recall evidence that the more secret a project, the the physically the deeper it would be right that may be so and other you may have uncovered that through other people um you know for my part the secrecy was more about an institutional kind of secrecy so uh you know somebody working on a part of the v2 v2 maybe is a bad example but somebody working on you know a part of a secret weapon whatever that was um uh would not have knowledge of another part of that secret weapon right. that you know, might've been to do, associated with a different part of the overall system. Uh, that same methodology, by the way, has been used in the production of black world technology in America and elsewhere um, today or, or in the intervening period. Um, so that so they whole- They pioneered methodology- that.
0: They pioneered Sorry? that approach. Would you say they, they were the pioneers of that oh, approach? Right
1: unquestionably the, uh, the 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 Germans and in particular Kamler's um, staff were the progenitors of that system, for sure. Yeah. And-, and also all the counterintelligence that went in place around it. So not only uh, was the system itself extremely secret, you know, with different components for machinery being built in, siloed compartments and offices and machine shops or whatever um but there was a counterintelligence organization around the whole organization that was designed specifically to mislead people about what was going on in those uh factories or yeah underground underground facilities
0: yeah yeah As my reading and very heavily inspired by your book that uh the that one of the main things that was imported from Germany was this infrastructure, not just about the physical technologies, but this infrastructure for having secret projects for having concealed underground compartmentalized uh, projects with this security architecture over them. That's deliberately trying to mislead and, and conceal because like you were saying, all of that stuff after the war, all of a sudden pops up in America in this way that it's deeply institutionalized, within the national security state, um, almost from 1945 on, you see a move to, uh, embrace this culture. And then you, and, and then you have these events like Roswell and other things that's, that seem to exist in order to further the justification for enhancing this system that's being put up, enhancing this sort of culture of secrecy and compartmentalization and, and stuff like that. So, uh, that's one of the most important things I think about your book is that you break this commerce, sto- the commerce story. And the commerce is the thing that we have to understand to understand America, because this program was literally brought and harvested into America and basically replicated, you know, a thousand fold or, or you know, brought to an extreme, you know, a, a whole nother level. But the core features that you discuss when you talk about the commerce you can see them all present once again, in the american uh military industrial complex uh, including the literally the underground bases but also this this idea of having this sort of security architecture that's
1: yeah well i think you know it was it was pretty obvious to the allies uh, the you know brits and the americans at the end of the second world war that so much of this machinery that the Germans and the SS had built, particularly around secret weapons, so much of that was unknown to them at the end of the Second World War. Literally, you know, there were instances where Allied troops would advance over German underground facilities and they would not know that they were there. And it was only sometime afterwards, you know, when when the front line had advanced and, you know, literally um, workers and uh, individuals would appear, I think after the German surrender, going, you know, hey, we've been, we've been underneath your, we've been beneath your feet all of this time, literally, that they realized how extensive these facilities were, a lot right. of them. You know, that led them unquestionably to think, you know, this was a very effective system. And as I've said earlier, the import of that system um would have then been very tempting i mean it was not only tempting they did it because they could see how effectively it had worked for germany uh and the 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 unfortunate byproduct of it as i've said also was that a lot of that the the, the sort of the the um the, 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 un, the more unfortunate aspects of, of secrecy, the kind of corrosive aspects of it came too. But, you know, that, that was, there was a, there was a deliberate uh, methodology, I think, in importing the literal physical architecture of the system across. And I mean, the part that I did not know at the end of the book, hump Zero Point, was what had happened to Kamler. I did not know then what I know now, what has been uncovered by others, that um, Kamler uh, didn't die at the end of the Second World War. He was, he handed himself over to the Americans. He was debriefed extensively. um, And then something happened to him. Don't know what happened, but it said he escaped from custody uh, in an interrogation facility in Germany uh about 10 months after the end of the war um and then thereafter that the trail goes cold again but you can bet your bottom dollar in those intervening 10 months the guy would have been bled dry for what he knew about the system he created which was this system of compartmentalization for highly secret technology and yeah You can see that then transposed into the American post-Second World War Cold War defense architecture, uh, which, again, has been tremendously effective. Um, And it had to be because it was, as we discussed earlier, designed to withstand Armageddon in the event of a thermonuclear exchange.
0: So two of the... besides breaking the story in the commerce stop program, you also kind of break this idea of that there was a whole portfolio of projects that were, they were pursuing of all different types and some of them got really exotic and actually had to do with this mystery of the UFO because we have this idea of Victor Schauberger. And then we also have this idea of the bell, the Nazi bell. And so, you know, It's interesting to draw an analogy between this German program and then the current program, because in the current situation, you would have a current national, I mean, military industrial complex in America, you have these different layers of black projects. So on one level, you could have like the stealth bomber. And, you know, that's based on one kind of paradigm of engineering and science and technology. But then you also have these and a level that's unseen that could be having to do with anti-gravity and making UFOs that we're seeing in the sky. And so there's these different levels and so and go back going back to nazi germany you know the first thing that people point to when they talk about oh there's a there was a secret technology program in germany they would say oh they were trying to develop the v2 bombs maybe advanced uh you know fighter jets and stuff like that but they don't touch on these really deep exotic levels of research that but these were the most highly prioritized and highly prized it seems of the commerce stop program like the bell i think you mentioned that it was called the, the the wonder weapon and was was their most highly prized and maybe victor schauberger's research interfaced with that to some degree but what, what can you tell us about this sort of tiered level of secret programs with truly exotic technologies existing at the very deepest shadowy levels
1: so i tr- i tried to be very careful in the writing of the book about what was known and what was sort of conjecture. Right. So, you know, there, in your description of, you know, different sort of levels of secrecy around, you know, secret weapons projects, starting with things like the V1 and the V2, which were guided weapons um, into more exotic stuff. Um First of all, I should say that the story around the bell was not discovered by me. It was Igor. actually uncovered by a guy called Igor Vitkovsky, who had developed his own theories about what that was, which sort of differentiated somewhat from my own at the at the end of the book. Um, I was very happy to listen to Igor expound his. Theories about what the bell was. He saw it as a sort of proto anti gravity device that somehow, you know, uh, spun up all kinds of sort of, you know, fields which mm, gave it a sort of anti gravitational property. I couldn't with any certainty say that that was true. That just the evidence wasn't there for me. What was patently true. Was that the bell had been sequestered, hidden away in a very mysterious SS weapons complex in modern southern Poland, um, and that that complex you could see even from the evidence, uh, the sort of the the, the the topological evidence, the the uh, the evidence of of infrastructure still in place was that this was a very secret facility given over to very secret stuff. I personally believe today that the infrastructure that was set up there was to do with an SS-run nuclear weapons program more than it was about anti-gravity. It could be, I mean, maybe Igor is right, and maybe that the Bell is or was uh, an anti-gravity device. I couldn't say that with certainty myself. I would hazard that it was probably to do with some kind of isotope separation device to do with a nuclear program before I could say it was anything to do with an anti-gravity program. But I have to hold my hands up and go, maybe it was. Um, Schauberger, again, interesting in that here was a guy who had developed very unique theories about how, uh, how machinery worked under sort of very natural laws and processes. Um, and he was unquestionably, because I saw the uh, the, the, the documentary uh, evidence, much of it presented to me by um, Victor Schauberger's family when I went to visit them, that Schauberger was uh, suborned by the SS to go off and do certain secret stuff. Um, by his own testimony, Schauberger's own testimony, he was developing engines for things that certainly looked pretty exotic. You know, there he testified in his own diaries um, and accounts that some of this stuff flew and flew... I guess, you know, we might be tempted to say anti-gravitationally, but certainly in a way that was, uh, you know, not uh, not conventional, put it that way. You could also make a case, though, I think when you look at it uh, retrospectively uh, and in a sort of slightly revisionist way, which I'm now able to do because it's 25 years on from when I was really looking at that stuff, That Schauberger too, could have been suborned into this highly secret SS-run nuclear weapons program. Um, And that some of his technology was about, you know, perhaps, you know, the separation of nuclear isotopes uh, uh, and the the generation of of nuclear material for a, a German atomic bomb, quite separate from the bomb that was stopped under the official... German bomb program run by Heisenberg, which oh. was canceled, I think, in 1942. So at all times, the, uh, the, 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 the investigator in me that wants to see hard evidence is having to question whether what I'm seeing is about exotic, let's call it propulsion and energy technology versus German secret nuclear technology. And for me, the jury is still very much out on that. Um, But I don't think that makes it any the less interesting. It actually makes it equally mysterious that all of that stuff about a buried, hidden, uh, but very extensive German nuclear weapons program uh, from the Second World War, which has not really come to light. Some excellent research done by a guy called Todd Ryder in the States, um, who's... Looked at the German nuclear weapons program and yeah, documented it extensively. You know, tells me you sh- one should keep an open mind about this stuff. But you know, again, it was the, the infrastructure around it all was uh, so uh, so comprehensive and so effective that you know. What we're left with, in effect, is a sort of a, a very diffuse traces of whatever it was that was going on there, right. and that again, that speaks volumes to mm. how effective Kamla was at keeping all of that stuff secret.
0: Right. Well, one one of the interesting mysteries involved with this whole thing is, I think you reported this what happened when the Americans first. After the war, uh, after they attained victory, that when they first entered these areas, I I, I know for sure you talked about it in the case of Victor Schauberger, and I think you also maybe mentioned it in in terms of the bell, where on on both cases, there seems to be, it seems to be clear that the American intelligence had foreknowledge of these programs, because I remember in in the case of uh Voss, I think his name is it was one yeah. of the uh the German guys who was affiliated with Kammler, and he says that he went to you know he tried to be an informant and be like, "Hey, I'll trade secrets about this and the and the American guys were like not interested basically acting like they already knew had to lay the land in terms of what was going on here and what they wanted and then Victor Schauberger, I think I remember you referencing the fact that he maybe wrote later on that he thought that there was uh, number one, something somebody interfering with his work, kind of behind the scenes in Germany, to kind of keep the progress from hitting a certain point before the war ended, and and also it seemed like they they knew exactly where he was and what he was working on. The American agents and kind of sought him out, like almost immediately after the war ended. Um, well,
1: now we know why, because you know, at the time, at the time I was looking at it and writing about it back then, you know, some of that stuff was quite opaque to me um in the sense that i did not know at that point because we didn't I, I conjecture that all the evidence seemed to be pointing to the fact that you know Kamler was a very resourceful individual didn't seem like he was going to just you know do himself in at the end of the war or you know find himself on the wrong side and and so at the end of the you know towards the end of the book i'm saying I think this guy seems to have been veering towards doing a deal with the Americans, right. but I can't prove that. Like I say, now I can, or at least others have right. the documents are all there to show that he handed himself over and he surrendered to American forces, which explains why, um, he was a, a, a advanced American troops who had the knowledge given to them by Kamala, it appears, were able to go to all of those places where they knew these secret programs were going on, including Schauberger's stuff. Right. And then turning up on his doorstep, isn't the mystery that it sort of appeared to have been then in right. that Kimmler or his subordinates merely directed them all to uh, the, the Americans to where these programs were. And even the handover of um, Werner von Braun's rocket scientists, to uh America which looks sort of quite haphazard at least you know the way the history books tell it it was quite a haphazard thing von Braun himself was largely behind you know the 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 handover all of that looks pretty orchestrated as well to me um through this lens that we now have which is you know Kamler handed himself over Um, and was able to direct everyone to where all these secret projects are. But actually, you can go even further back and see that there had been uh, overtures opened up um, between America and uh, Kamler's um, offices before the end of the war about how we hand this stuff over. uh, Mm -hmm. We Germans... Um, particularly from Kamala's staff, and there had been exchanges um about that so the, the 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 handover uh of all of this knowledge was was i think pretty orchestrated right. and of course, given that you were dealing with an extremely um ruthless lethal and murderous organization covering that up was a priority you couldn't you know just throw your hands up and go yeah well we accepted all of this stuff and you know we should be grateful and open about it because we've got the technology well no you couldn't be open about it because it came with a a very heavy price and that, that price was the 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 level of suffering that came about through the the whole holocaust connection uh, which made it something that you would want to keep very deep, dark, and secret.
0: The that angle, but also the idea that, to the extent that there were these very exotic technologies being harvested, uh, that you know those formed the basis of a new national security strategy, and and that alone would justify the the extensive cover up and need to keep this whole story untold for as long as possible um right well i think you know that
1: the national security strategy um was so heavily influenced by the 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 emergence of nuclear power you know nuclear destructive power um you know in may 1945 of course it was still a couple of months on from the detonation of the first atomic bomb um in america uh but you know the knowledge that this was going to be the the shape of things you know immediately after the war that 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 the world was going to be entering a nuclear age certainly to my mind anyway shaped the national security infrastructure of well of course not just america but also of the soviet union and other emerging nuclear powers. Um, but like I say, there's pretty strong evidence that the German nuclear program was much more extensive anyway than uh, history relates. It right. It
0: seems they had a working bomb. I mean, there's pretty, pretty- Well,
1: you know, there is testimony to say testimony that there have to. been uh, uh, tests of bombs. Um, it's just that the footprint of uh, those tests you know if 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 they took place have long since gone or appear to have right. um so again you know you, you sort of i need to be careful about what the evidence actually says right. but certainly the the, the 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 there there is strong evidence to my mind of a deep infrastructure given over to nuclear weapons um and you know you mentioned uh wilhelm voss who was sort of kamler's alter-ego administrator of the Kamler staff. Um, Voss, by his own testimony, uh, says that he was delivering plans for a German atomic bomb to the Americans when he was trying to hand himself over. Mm. And as you said, he was rebuffed in that. that Those people said, "You know, forget it, we don't want to know. Um, and why didn't they want to know? because they had the plans already they, right. you know whatever voss was going to tell them was redundant because Kamler had already handed them over chances are so you know it's right. it's a fascinating untold story to my mind um uh of, of of that uh that part of the second world war
0: right so i'm i'm curious so after you published the book you said you kind of moved on, uh, got involved in different things. How, how did, Would have you had a steady stream of people contact you and want to talk more about the subject with you since then? Or were you able, actually able to kind of put this to rest and not really deal with it for a long period until these more recent events took place?
1: Well, I, I, I so, you know, the book came out, it generated a certain amount of interest. Um, it mean, did quite well commercially to uh, at the time it came out um but you know I, i've sort of first and foremost i mean i i i went back to my job at jane's defence weekly uh and i did that for a few more years um it wasn't so interesting for me anymore i think you know once you'd sort of been on that journey that i'd been that led to the hunt for zero point I you know my mind had been opened up to uh other things that I wanted to go off and do so going back to my old job didn't quite have the appeal that it 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 had before I set off on that journey um and
0: then what was the reaction uh, of your colleagues uh, Did They just oh, pretend like uh, it didn't exist
1: <laughs> uh, no no overwhelmingly um uh cynical i mean you know uh, it was it was very much like you know cook's been drinking the kool-aid a little too deeply and what is he writing about all of this stuff um for i mean having said that i had colleagues i mean i was very supported by my editors at jane's defense weekly when i was researching and writing the book i informed them of what i was doing um didn't I didn't tell my colleagues because uh, just I was doing this stuff sort of, if you like, on the side. But right. I did tell my editors that I was doing it and they were very supportive about it. But, uh, you know, I, and, and I had another colleague I'd worked with extensively. Um, a chap called Bill Sweetman, who'd done a lot of work on black, uncovering black programs with me. You know, things like stealth and stealth fighters and what have you. Uh he generously said that the Hunt for Zero Point should become a textbook for how you uh, lead and uh, for investigative journalism, in mm. effect. And I like to think of it that way, you know, in that it does follow a series of clues mm-hmm. that take you to a kind of truth. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't derive a huge amount of satisfaction, but I do derive some satisfaction from the fact that you know we have in 2023 um an investigation going on in in capitol hill into the whole ufo uap question in which those politicians are clearly uh signaling that they think that there is a buried uh uap program right. uh, within the american defense infrastructure system um which you know, I didn't even go into that territory at all with the Hunt for Zero Point. That was quite separate to my mind from the investigation that I was doing. But, um, you know, what my colleagues working in aerospace and defense sector journalism would have made of that at the time, right? I could only guess at, right. but you know, they, they certainly looked at me askance uh, as if I was you know embarking on something um really quite uh insane and uh, to to me in a way it was it was uh, but I was compelled to do it it was uh once i'd been presented with right. those initial clues there was no way that i could not follow them up and right. that i can re- i can relate, is- relate
0: to that you you kind of there's a calling that all of a sudden comes to you and you feel like there's no you have no choice but to do the thing
1: Absolutely no choice. I, I was I was on that path.
0: Um. So just to wrap things up, I know that you've moved into in recent years uh, becoming a novelist, and you also said that you've been more and more interested with field of mind and consciousness. Uh. So let's start with the novelist. I've I noticed that the themes seem to draw upon your background in at Jane's Defense Weekly in in the sort of military technology world um what what what's your angle on on uh getting into this field of creative writing are you trying to bring kind of your real world knowledge and kind of make it alive through story or what's your approach
1: well uh what's not sort of general well why should anyone know this at all but but i i was actually a novelist before i uh i I wrote the hump zero point so Mm. i wrote i wrote two novels two thrillers before i wrote the hump zero point and so i was able to bring a sort of certain thriller writing style to to the hunt and that was deliberate because this was a commercial book it was bought commercially by a mainstream publisher both in the UK and in the US Um, and you know I knew it was pretty sort of um, inaccessible you know as a subject matter to most people so in order to make it accessible I wanted to tell it narratively you know so um, I, I, I describe things in the order that they came to me but I wanted to do it in a way that sort of had Page turnability about it, so mm-hmm. there is deliberately that sort of thrillerish. Sort yeah, of it does.
0: Of it. it does read very well. I mean, it it pulls you right along. Uh, well,
1: great. Well, that's thank you. That's nice to know. And it it was deliberately done that way. So to to employ the techniques that I'd previously learned as a thriller writer, you know, and to to sort of apply it to that nonfiction format. Um, so uh, but what I also did as well, uh, while I was even when I was at Jane's Defense Weekly, I ghost wrote. I wrote for other people. So oh, if wow. people had a story to tell, I would tell their story for them. And I have uh, not that I can talk about them too much. But, you know, I've had books in the bestseller list through the principles that I've written for um, that. You know, I did a lot of that stuff as wow. well. So and I did that while I was a journalist and then after I left Jane's too I did some of that. And then I had this crazy idea uh, shortly after leaving Jane's that the the sort of the, the aerospace and defense knowledge that I knew about from my 15 years at reporting on that industry could and should be applied to global challenges like you know climate change and food and water security and environmental degradation. So I worked with the defense industry for a while to try and get them to apply that knowledge to you know quote saving the planet.
0: As like a consultant,
1: uh, I, I, of- independently to begin with, but yeah. then I did actually work as a consultant to uh, a, a few aerospace companies on that. And I brought together the chief technology officers of eight of the nine big aerospace and defense sector primes in Washington D.C. with President Obama's science advisor John Holdren in 2011, and we talked about all of this. You know, how do we how do we save the planet, or how do you save the planet? You know, you aerospace and defense companies. Uh, and that was an interesting period in my life. And um, and then uh, then I went back to thriller writing again novel writing so i wrote a a novel called the grid i did some ghost writing as well and then 2017 came along you know when the new york times wrote this ufo story about the period tip program in the pentagon investigating ufos and it sort of rekindled my interest in the stuff that i've been writing about when i was researching the Humphrey zero point and i got in touch with some of those old sources and people who'd uh had sort of guided me on on some aspects of the hump zero point story and but in the meantime actually I'd become interested in consciousness because uh I'd witnessed a rather extraordinary event um at the strange as it may sound or or sort of dark as it may sound it 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 wasn't that at all um when my mother-in-law died I was in the room and my wife had this extraordinary experience where she felt she'd been taken part of the way with my mother-in-law when she died in that she experienced a timeless, infinite, connected space mm-hmm. that um, others have typically described when they've had a near-death experience. Right. Didn't know it at the time that there was a thing called a shared death experience, which imbue some of the in which some of the qualities of a near-death experience are imbued into the individual who's sharing in that experience I was so this is where the sort of curious investigator part of me kicked in because I was so intrigued by what had happened to her that I went off and researched the whole consciousness thing a little bit like I'd been led down a path Right. When that anti-gravity article landed on my desk at Jane's Defence Weekly, and that led me down that road, well, this led me down a consciousness path, and uh, ultimately With the idea of doing
0: a book on the topic. No, no, that? not
1: at not at all. Uh, I was just researching it because I, uh, I I was initially not. After a bit, I amassed so much knowledge well, at least I became so immersed in the subject area that I felt I was able to write a book about it. But I couldn't write a non-fiction book about it because I wasn't qualified to. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Right. Um, so instead, I wrote a thriller about it, which is The Grid.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, and But then I continued to be intrigued by it. I ended up actually entering an essay competition, uh, which had been... Um mounted, set in place by uh Robert Bigelow's uh, uh sort of nascent consciousness institute called Bix, the Bigelow Institute of Consciousness Studies. And uh that was a two million dollar prize attached to that contest. And I ended up being one of the winners oh, of that wow. contest, to my extraordinary surprise. Um and what that has given me, and actually then uh, Robert Bigelow offered me a research director's post in the Institute. So I've sort of maintained this consciousness connection since, and uh, become extremely interested in it. And that's sort of still guiding some of my interests and work today. So yeah, um, that's where I am now.
0: So what do you have on the horizon in terms of your involvement with that institute and are you working towards a goal or are you working towards a, on a project that's
1: well no i mean robert bigelow himself has his own goals and sort of uh aims associated with his own institute um and i'm you know only uh, along with eight other uh directors are sort of uh indirectly involved in that um I, you know i've got my own ideas about you know sort of setting up something that uh is about consciousness about it merges some of those earlier themes where i had been working with the aerospace and defence sector in 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 seeing how we can you know why why are we stuck in certain paradigms of thought and thinking maybe there are ways that we can Uh, uh, trigger new sort of new ways of thinking in people in society to make us look at challenges in the world in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm a little involved in thinking that one through at the moment. I'm still writing a lot. Um, So yeah, I sort of, I keep pretty busy with one thing and another. Do
0: you have any ambitions to have any of these uh, books that you've written turned into screenplays or made into a I,
1: yeah i mean I, I first and foremost my sort of storytelling uh kind of um my love of storytelling is mostly uh associated with films i'm not i'm not a screenwriter i'm not a i am not I do not write film scripts, but I love the movies as a as a thing, mm-hmm. so I've always sort of seen things quite sort of filmically and of course i would so I would love for um, some of the things that I've created to be turned into films. I mean, we've had I had a lot of film interest over the years in the Hump Zero Point, and it would be great if someone one day took the ideas expressed in the book and you know made them their own. I'd 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 be delighted to see that happen, um, and also some of the other stuff I've done. So yeah, uh, I, I'd be very open to
0: that so idea. So who, who would you have play you? <laughs>
1: um well uh i don't know i haven't quite got that far um i i i i certainly know uh who uh you know i, I think there are various candidates out there that my wife would like to see uh, actors play me but i don't think that's very realistic so uh, i don't uh i don't know i've only got as far as thinking through how i would try and tell the story right. filmically were I to be involved in the project. And I certainly have some ideas about that. I think, I think it, can it
0: definitely work as a, as a movie for sure.
1: Well, thank you. It It's uh, I think it would, um, you know, funnily enough, there's been renewed interest in it since the whole UFO resurgence over the last five years or so. Um, more people have come to the book. I'd say in a way more people have come to the book in the last five years than they certainly did in its first five years. And there there were those wilderness years in between when, you know, I never really discussed it at all. Um, So yeah, who knows? Somebody may read it, pick it up and go, yeah, you know,
0: this is a Spielberg
1: movie. (laughs) Well,
0: it was great to talk to you, Nick. I really enjoyed this.
1: Well, me too, Alex. Uh, And um, thank you. You know, I've really enjoyed uh, the, well, Gosh, almost two hours have flown. So thank <laughs> you uh, for your, uh, you know, very uh, in-depth questions. And uh, it certainly made me think about the book again um, in a whole new light. So I've enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you. Hopefully we can, we can stay in touch and um, yeah, good luck with everything.
1: Thank you very much indeed. All right. Take care. Are we done? Out? Yeah, Finished? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. Listen. Thanks again. I really enjoyed it. Uh take care and uh we'll stay in touch. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.